Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. Depression isn't modern. I think the modern terms we use might be sort of like changed over time. So depression was first used, I think, by the 18th century. And that's what really kind of fascinated me about, you know, researching this book is just, you know, you can see yourself in these people who are long dead. Right now, across the globe, an estimated 332 million people live with depression, and not just in Western countries, is so often assumed. Yet despite mental illness being the leading cause of disability, very few people receive treatment that is actually proven to work. We still aren't sure what causes depression, or how to effectively deal with it, or if the term is even a helpful description of a condition that has a huge and diverse range of symptoms. But now, the science writer Alex Riley has attempted to tackle all these issues in perhaps the most comprehensive book about depression yet, that I have read most certainly. A Cure for Darkness, the story of depression and how we treat it is out now, and I'm so grateful to welcome Alex to Mad World today. Hello Alex, how are you really? I've actually recently just gone back on medication because I've had a really difficult few months and yeah, I've had some mental health checkups, some psychiatric meetings and yeah, me and my partner both sort of agreed that it was best if I went back on uh, medication. Not good is uh, the the answer, but um, no, hopefully once the nausea goes away, I'll hopefully be more stable soon. Thank you for being honest about that as well, because, I mean, the, the whole purpose of asking that question first is that whole, we all go, I'm fine, thanks, great, move on, do you know what I mean? And um, it's really important. And this book, it's born entirely out of your own personal experience, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You say in the book that, like thick curly hair, depression runs in your family. Can you talk a bit about that? Yes. Well, the first story I heard was my mother, and this was throughout my childhood, she talked about her mother who died before I was born being institutionalized. And this was a story I'd heard from her and too young to really understand what it really meant or, you know, didn't understand that these things actually were passed on through families and before my depression became a problem in my life. But it kind of gave me this awareness that there was something in my family that was kind of unspoken or stigmatized. And it kind of became, for my mother, it was this sort of, such a difficult thing to accept for her that she was depressed herself, but she didn't really turn to psychiatric care or any sort of mental health care whatsoever. So this moment really affected 
all of our lives. So my mum turned to alcohol and that affected my sort of um, underlying genetic susceptibility to uh, mental illness. So yeah, my family history is of depression, of addiction, and also my cousin has schizophrenia. So mental illness is really in its broadest sort of brush has really kind of painted my family for at least three generations. And now being a father myself with, you know, 18 month old girl, it's kind of brought this sort of element of not only treatment, but how do we prevent it? And this is what I'm trying to do now is, you know, making sure I'm stable so that I don't turn to alcohol, which is always very tempting to me. Um, and I've had problems in the past with addiction myself, but now I really want to, you know, do anything that will help stop this or at least manage it a little bit better. And I don't want to blame, you know, my mother for, for her, you know, choice. It wasn't a choice. It's, it's an illness just like anything else. But as a child, it's very difficult to kind of reconcile with the fact that she's chosen alcohol over me or that's how it seemed. Now I know that's not the case. Mm. The children of alcoholics, it's, um, I mean, I myself, I don't know if you know this, my daughter was four when I got sober. And um, I think it was really interesting that I thought that pregnancy and motherhood was going to do for me what treatment does for everybody else, you know, and I could yeah. not believe it when my beautiful daughter was born and two weeks later I was back drinking. And uh, there was that whole thing of I, I couldn't believe that the love of this beautiful child and my husband hadn't cured me of my alcoholism. And that I think is a really important thing to say and to, to acknowledge that it is a kind of thing that often it is an illness like any other. It's just very stigmatized. The book, I mean, I've, I really feel that only someone with an intimate knowledge of mental illness could have written this book. And that sort of flip side of taking these negatives and turning them into positives. It's so comprehensive. There's so much in it. And, you know, I, I feel like we could probably do several hours of chatting about this. But I think what was most interesting for me is that, you know, there's a tendency to think of depression and anxiety as modern illnesses, right? And there's an epidemic of mental illness now. But of course, I've always thought that perhaps this is actually just more people are able to talk about it. So there's more reportage of it, essentially. But as your book shows, it's, an, it's not a modern illness at all. No. No, I think it's one of the most consistent diagnoses throughout history of depression, once called melancholia and now called depression. But yeah, I kind of trace it back to ancient Greek sort of texts. But even before then, you know, in like ancient poetry from India, you can still find traces of people who, for no reason, just become either just stop sleeping, can't, you know, have no appetite and have a sort of tendency towards suicide and you know it's really a very ancient and very sort of stable condition through time and so this is kind of part of the book for me is where do I stand in this history where do my family history where is it in this grander picture and that's what really kind of fascinated me about you know researching this book is just you know you can see yourself in these people who are long dead like not just like in you know centuries but millennia and yeah so I think depression isn't modern I think the modern terms we use might be sort of like changed over time so depression was first used I think by the 18th century um, it was taken from cardiology so they used it for a lowering of the heart rate and then it became a mental depression so it became more of a psychological um, term so the terms we use can change and shift but the, the underlying 
symptoms and experience of depression is very stable. And yet, <laughs> it's such a mystery. There's a, there's a bit in the book which I've got here, which I just read out because I think it sums it. Is the human body is awesome in its complexity and it demands centuries and millennia to understand in detail. Nowhere is this more obvious than depression, a disorder that has an almost comical talent of avoiding biological definition, whether it's caused by an imbalance of bile, we were referencing there, or chemicals in the brain. It has a history of duping those who try and pin it to a unifying theory. And that's really the kind of basis of the book, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, yeah, it's comical that we always seem to think that we found the, the cause. I mean, from ancient Greeks thinking it's black bile to... Uh, chemists in the 1960s thinking it's serotonin or norepinephrine, these sort of neurotransmitters. And yeah, we haven't got anywhere with our understanding of it, whether it's genetic or the chemicals involved. There, there obviously is, you know, a deeper understanding, but we don't have this understanding that we can have for other illnesses like cancer or, yeah, physical diseases. And you talk a lot about, I mean, the book is split into four sections and you sort of start by talking about the history of it, but then you t you also talk a lot about throughout history, the various treatments that have been thought up. And so there's the black bile, the, what's it called? The the humours, is that it? Oh yeah, yeah, the, the humours, yeah. So we have four humours and melancholia is one of them, the black bile. And then, but also, and the one that, some of the stuff is just grim. So there's a long passage about lobotomies would you talk to us a bit about what happened there? In particular, there's something, it was the ice pick. Go back to what, you know, when this sort of came about and what happened, because it's a terrible sort of indictment, really, on, it's a crime, I feel, isn't it? Yeah, going back into history, I didn't want to have the the benefit of, of hindsight. I wanted to see, you know, these things unfold as they did at the time. And it kind of shows without my sort of emotion in the book, I hope that these things are as horrifying as they need to be just by telling it straight. And lobotomy, it was seen as a miracle cure. And I think this is why I, I was, you know, compelled to write about it is it kind of makes you question what mistakes are we making that we don't really realize that we're making at the time. Only with hindsight do we realize now that it was a very damaging and brutal treatment. I mean, you can't really call it a treatment, but it also brings into question how we define recovery because lobotomies were given to people who were suicidal or uh, psychotic, uh, who were in mental institutions. And after parts of their brain, part of the frontal lobe, just behind your forehead was disconnected from more central parts of the brain. This was started off with surgery that cut holes in, in the skull and then use a, a small implement to kind of um, sever some of the connections. and. This was thought to kind of literally break the ruminations and the sort of the, the harmful patterns of, of mental behavior biologically. And it was deemed a success because these people were no longer suicidal. They no longer had these thoughts, or if they had them, they were no longer bothered by them. So people were allowed out of mental institutions. They could go home and they could, you know, sit in the same chair day after day after day. And that's what was considered to be a success because there was a huge pressure to get more people out of institutions because they were you know seen as a burden on the taxpayer so i wanted to kind of tell this story you know as a a mirror to kind of our modern society of you know what are the things now that we could possibly question and the metrics we use to 
to gauge whether something works. And the ice pick you mentioned is just this one sort of maverick uh, neurologist, Walter Freeman in the, in the US, who it just became so far-fetched that he just went completely off the rails and, you know, deluded almost as he was trying to t treat these deluded patients. He thought he could just simplify this surgical operation by using an ice pick that could go in behind the eye socket and um, cut some of the, the brain tissue that sit behind the eye. And he was blind to what he was cutting. He was, you know, you know, doing so much damage to people. And he'd actually go on tours around the US and treat people and demonstrate to other psychiatrists just how simple his methods were. I mean, it was like he was like, and this only takes three minutes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you can ruin life in three minutes. Let's get to it. I mean, that's the thing. So these people were essentially cured of their mental illness, but only because they had literally been lobotomized. They couldn't feel anything really anymore. Yeah, or it, yeah, it just, and it, it got more precise. And, you know, there are still variations of lobotomy still used today, but they're very sort of precise I think for OCD, for very, very severe OCD that hasn't responded to anything. But it's not, you know, a severing of any sort of like like parts of the brain. It's sort of a very targeted approach. So it has a legacy. And But the legacy I really wanted to tell was just how science can be and psychiatry can be sort of so misled um, if you aren't kind of careful of, of, of what you're actually doing. So you mentioned that you want to challenge people to think about what potentially the things that we do now that in I don't know 50 years time whatever we might look back and go god that was a bit you know that wasn't necessary what what do you think because obviously now the recommendation for treatment is antidepressants and talking therapy but you make the point in the book which is that there is a really I mean can we talk a bit about ECT <laughs> because it seems to me that that's remarkably effective but it went out of fashion in the 60s in part because of the marketing of this new wonder drug that we now know as Prozac. Yeah, sure. So Prozac was in the 80s, but in the 60s, there were other antidepressants that did, you know, like imipramine was the one in the 60s that sort of people thought, why do we you know, need things like ECT? But when I first started writing the book, I thought, you know, like a lot of people do, that this is a, a barbaric treatment. I had no place in psychiatry. It's electric shock therapy yeah. electroconvulsive yeah. can you kind of talk through what that involves because it does sound barbaric yeah so it started with using small shocks to the temples to induce an epileptic fit um, and epilepsy has been for millennia people have been writing about how after an epileptic fit people with severe mental illness do tend to have or have better outcomes or they do seem to be a little bit better and so in the 1930s, a few Italian researchers wondered whether they could induce an epileptic fit, and they found that electricity to the temples could could do that. And like I said, I thought that this was barbaric and you know it's going to be harmful to the patient. And indeed, it could be if it was if it was used incorrectly, and it has been used for very horrible reasons to control people because after the epileptic fit, people tend to be more pliable or quieter but over the decades this treatment has been made much safer with muscle relaxants so there's no actual epileptic fit anymore people don't move really a muscle that they use general anesthesia so people don't really have this horrible like anxious reaction to the treatment and I actually followed a few 
psychiatrists and have been in clinics in both the US and Denmark as part of my reporting to kind of actually see it being used. And it's, it's just like walking into sort of a dentist's clinic. It's very brightly lit. Someone's on a gurney and the person is there completely of their own volition and their own sort of wants to be in this treatment room because they've tried sometimes a lot of, yeah, antipsychotics and antidepressants. And a lot of them told me that, you know, this is what works for them. And, you know, they wish that they didn't need it, but they prefer to have a few sessions of ECT and, you know, not be suicidal or delusional or psychotic and even prefer it to having constant medication. I mean, you, you make this point, yeah, so it fell out of fashion and yet it is, it does seem to be remarkably effective. Because that is the interesting, like how much of our modern quote unquote treatment for depression is very little has been proven to actually make that much of a difference. Yeah. So an ECT is one of those ones for very severe depressions that does seem to have this huge efficacy, this success rate compared to other methods such as antidepressants or antipsychotics. Um some of the data is, you know, questionable and a lot of people still, you know, think that ECT doesn't have that good of an evidence base. I would disagree, but, you know, it's it's hard to argue that this is effective for, you know, a very a subset of people with depression. I think it wouldn't help me. My depression doesn't have the sort of delusional, like psychotic episodes or the severity of people who benefit from this, from this treatment. But like you say, a lot of other treatments, the effect sizes, how much they work above placebo, isn't that great. I mean, antidepressants, you know, I think they probably work in just over 50% of people and about 35% of that response can be attributed to a placebo effect. So they're very minor differences, very important differences, especially for people like me who, who benefits from them. But yeah, we don't have that a great number of treatments in psychiatry. Well, I've always thought, you know, and I, I come at this as I've been taking antidepressants since I was 17 and I still do, right? I now realise I will never come off them because I don't have <laughs> several years free to deal with the withdrawal and the side effects. And so and it's fine. It doesn't affect me. It doesn't, you know, like I, I can cry, I can feel, I can do all those other things. But, and I suppose it's a kind of, it doesn't really matter, but... I can see how, you know, we do, you talk a lot about the withdrawal effects of antidepressants and how potent that is. And I, you know, and I don't want this to be a conversation where we, you know, you know, slam antidepressants. Both of us are on them right now, you know. But I do think it's really worth having the conversation that you have, that you, you bring up in this book. Because I think also the point you make is that for a lot of doctors, if someone has plucked up the courage to come to them and ask for treatment to turn them away with nothing is to add to their hopelessness. So antidepressants become a, a fantastic means by which to give some hope in lieu of any other treatment plan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just on the, the withdrawal, I think, for me, I've come off them three times now, and it really does vary. I think the first time I took three months and reduced my dose slowly, uh, did a lot of exercise and other sort of elements that could help with the, with the side effects the second time I came off pretty quickly, actually. So uh, it was within two to three weeks and I didn't feel any sort of side effects that would make me question coming off them. So there was no sort of 
emergence of the depression. I think it was mainly because I was very ready to come off them. Uh, and I was very healthy in myself, which I think helps by taking off these sort of these stabilizers as it were. And yes, I think it really does. It does vary, but putting people on these drugs, I think they need to be aware that it can be, you know, a horrendous experience and it can be very difficult And people like yourself, you know, don't have the time or, you know, just don't want to even attempt to do that because it's quite a scary thing to, to do. Um, I think doctors are in a very difficult position, but there are other options that I kind of described in the book that might be worth trying first before people are put on these, these drugs that do, you know, have quite horrible side effects in a lot of people and are very hard to come off. So I would argue that if someone isn't in such a hopeless state that they might be able to try something that doesn't have these these drawbacks first. Can you talk through a few of those things? Well, I kind of go into changes in lifestyle, like so exercise and diet and things like this. Like I think exercise is probably one of the most important things, but how do you prescribe that for people who are already feeling you know, low? So it is a very difficult situation, but I think if people are given the evidence that these things really do work as well, if not better than antidepressants in people, then I think they'd be more willing to really kind of give it a go. Exercise is one of the few things proven to help lift your mood, isn't it? Yeah, they've tested it against, you know, antidepressants. And also for people who who exercise and are on antidepressants, they can actually work in, in tandem. So exercise can reduce inflammation, which makes antidepressants more effective. So one of the problems with antidepressants, especially SSRIs, is they tend to not work for people who have high levels of inflammation in their body. So, and exercise is one of the ways to reduce that. So, yeah, they can work together. Well, the fascinating thing is, is that you come towards the end of the book, this whole thing about inflammation and how is depression caused. It's the undeniable fact that we have these sort of, you know, the psychiatry or there's pills, but it's it's somewhere in between. And just as the, the brain is obviously part of the body. And, you know, there's all sorts of theories that our mood is linked to our gut microbiome and, and the inflammation in the rest of our body. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I talk to people from Ireland where, you know, they've been studying inflammation for, you know, four decades and it's only become trendy recently. But, um, yeah, and one of the researchers there who's now in his 80s really wishes that he could now be, you know, part of the research um, that he started back in the 1980s when it was considered to be a real fringe theory. But now everyone seems to be speaking about, you know, the importance of inflammation of the microbiome and some of the most effective treatments that have been replicated uh, for depression is things like Mediterranean diet. So I think there have been three or four studies in the last three years that have found a Mediterranean diet rich in vegetables and, you know, oily fish, fresh fruit can be very effective in treating depression. There's also a bit in the book where you talk about you you try is it mushrooms or you have a trip because obviously there's a, all sorts of theories about LSD and you know, there's a big bit in the book of it but there's someone that says to you that he talks about how depression is you know it's a sign of the system not working <laughs> and you have to reset the system now I'm fascinated by this theory that depression is in itself almost like the cure and it's your brain's way of saying that the way you're living your life is not right. What do you hold with that? And what did you kind of discover about that kind of theory? And I guess it's probably, it's a, it's a really broad 
question but I do think that often we, we want to kind of stop the depression obviously it's horrible or we want to stop the anxiety but is it sometimes our body's way of telling us that the system we are working in and living in is not working for us yeah no and that's one of the reasons I I wanted to come off antidepressants is is there a reason why I'm feeling this way and are these drugs masking it and just sedating me from something that I could change and speaking from a you know relative place of you know, privilege, I could, you know, perhaps change my job or, you know, where I live, I could, you know, move closer to friends or family or, or something like that. I do think that, you know, depression thrives on our insecurities or our sort of like, whether we're sort of unsatisfied at work. The only issue I have is it also thrives in poverty and inequality. And, you know, people can't change that just like I can change a lot of my lifestyle choices. And, you know, poverty and trauma are the two that kind of contribute to the burden of depression. So as an idealist, it would be amazing to kind of say, yes, we don't have these social triggers. We don't, you know, need to take antidepressants because, you know, we, we should just change our lives or we should be able to, you know, find what's at fault. But then, you know, we have these very real problems of, you know, poverty and death and, you know, all these things that people can't just simply deal with. And that's why these treatments are so important. Well, of course, of course. But I mean, I think also it's that I mean, that's when we talk about poverty and economic insecurity. I mean, that's this is where funding, you know, needs to come in, where the government, I mean, sounding, I'm sounding a bit radical now, but it's almost a much bigger thing than that, you know, that we live in these societies where there is immense poverty, where, you know, some people have ready access to treatment and others don't. Like that in itself to me is the sign of a sick society. Yeah. And I think that, yeah, that leads into psychedelics as well the person who you quoted there of saying you know the system is broken we need to have a reset i think psychedelics have probably going to be the ones that really are for the wealthy and not for the people who are disadvantaged because you know there's a huge financial incentive for psychedelic therapy nowadays and people from more wealthy backgrounds might be able to tap into these therapy rooms and these long integration sessions whereas people who living in less economically viable like situations might not be able to but yeah i think you know funding mental health care is something that i would hugely support and especially in adolescent child mental health care because it gets such a small amount of funding and that's where you would really i think 75 percent of mental illness comes from you know the ages of 12 to 25 so this is the area i think we'd love to see more psychotherapy and more sort of support in making children resilient well, because, you know, this is the thing we don't talk about, isn't spoken about enough, is that mental illness is quite treatable if you, you know, it, you know, if you get it mm. early. Yeah. But if you don't, it sort of can spiral and become, you know, more and more and your coping mechanisms can themselves create extra burden. So, for example, for me, I, I had obsessive compulsive disorder from a very young age and my coping mechanism as I got older was became drugs and alcohol, you know, but, but then we have the extra thing of alcoholism. So you get it young, you get it in with the children, you know, and you're, you're at least, you know, you, you don't have that snowball effect, if that makes any sense. You talk so much about, you say, you know, how much we spend, we spend so much money trying to extend the human life yeah 
but hardly any improving the quality of that, you know? Yeah, no. The other thing, now talking about this, one of the most fascinating bits, in my opinion, of the book, and which I'm really glad you addressed, is the frankly racist theory that depression is a solely Western illness. You hear this quite often, well people in Africa don't have anything but they're happy and you quite brilliantly debunk that in this book can you talk a bit about that yeah so um I was reporting from Zimbabwe on a sort of grassroots project there called the Friendship Bench which is now spreading around the world and royalty have sat on this bench now at sort of different events around the world and yeah it's become a real global driver for change which is amazing but even this project had to deal with this idea not only from Western countries, but in Zimbabwe itself, that, you know, sub-Saharan African people don't suffer from depression. And, you know, this has roots in sort of colonial empires where, you know, people didn't believe that black people were either intelligent enough to, to suffer from depression. It was just a very sort of, you know, because they didn't speak the language, they couldn't even have any idea about the emotional worlds that they were neighboring or they worked in mental institutions that only saw the very severe end of the spectrum they didn't actually have you know an insight into what actually went on in communities and so this was you know very recent in you know 1960s you can still see you know people writing about you know that this the mental illness and depression specifically is a westernized disease you know born of civilization and the rush of modernity and as i kind of revealing the book is you know actually it's more born of poverty and disadvantage and you know these are rife in places with you know high viral loads of you know hiv and malaria and these communities in zimbabwe where, where i traveled to they actually had to kind of come up with a a new term for depression because they didn't have a word for depression in the local language and so people spoke to so psychiatrists from um, from London, traveled over there and, you know, spoke to local leaders and churchgoers and kind of found that the reason we weren't really discovering or finding depression is because we weren't using the right terms. And they found actually that the most, the closest word that they used uh, or term they used for depression was thinking too much, which really gets to like the rumination and the sort of overthinking that is you know core of how western societies even define depression it's just you know depression as a word is a very european or u.s centric definition and so once we realized that thinking too much was the sort of key definitive sort of term for depression it then revealed itself as you know i think in some cases twice as prevalent in harare in zimbabwe than it was in a similar community in in south london I'm glad that you kind of discussed that and you enjoyed that part of the book. It was, you know, amazing to 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 report this story and how not only that depression was revealed, but also how now high income nations such as the US and the UK are learning from countries in sub-Saharan Africa by adopting projects like the Friendship Bench, which, you know, is, you know, led by a group of grandmothers who sit down on the bench and provide problem-solving therapy for people with depression and other sort of mental illnesses. So I traveled to New York and found people there who were using this same idea of a project that people from the community could heal other people who had been through similar things. And now it's been used for sort of drug addiction in the US, so the opioid epidemic, and it's recently been started in the UK. So it's a real sort of reversal of history. It's an amazing story. 
peer support, essentially. Yeah, essentially, yeah, which has you know fluctuated through time, but it's psychiatry became so you know medicalized that we forgot that you know people are people, and you know people who have been through the same problems and are sort of embodiments of of recovery are sometimes the most powerful healers. And yeah, that's what I really loved about this story, and wish we could really invest and and learn more about how this can be used because. You know, there's a huge gulf between even a, a therapist and the client, usually, in my personal experience. And, you know, if you're black and living in the UK and you have a white psychiatrist or a white therapist who doesn't really understand your background or your, your sort of neighborhood, then your chances of finding success or healing are, are quite slim. I do think peer support is really key. I set up something called Mental Health Mates six years ago, which is walks around the country where people create their own communities. And it's very clearly peer support and not therapy. But it amazes me now because I just, it's everywhere. There's a postcode finder. But I also think in terms of my own recovery, like the most key thing has been peer support because has been identifying with someone else because like you know this we I know this de- like depression and mental illnesses are disease they're illnesses of isolation you know and they they thrive by isolating you from people and making you think that you're a freak and that no one understands what you're going through or that you will be you know you make you feel shame about it and then it keeps you where you need to be the moment that you see that no there's someone out there who's been through what you've been through and who's come out the other side. That's fantastically powerful, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, what this whole project is is based on. And like you say, this this is peer support has now been used through the pandemic as well to really reach neighborhoods that might not be otherwise supported. I think for depression, for, for drug addiction, it's a hugely powerful tool to have, but I, w- I wish it was used more. Well, it's the basis of all 12-step programs as well, isn't it? That's true, yeah. So so tell me, so here we are, the book's out, and, you know, you have done a huge amount of... I mean, this book is like 600 pages. There's a, there's a huge amount of research in there. I think it's 400. Is it? Oh, well, my copy... Oh, well, I'm including all the index notes. But it's a huge book. What have you come to the conclusion as you sit talking to me from your home in Bristol and you yourself are experiencing you know this again and that's okay because i think also you make it clear that it's a you know recovery is not linear and we have there can be a chronic element to depression and it comes and it goes and it doesn't mean you're but what do you think is the key to treating depression and do you think as you you make the point at the end of the book should we even be calling this depression anymore yeah well i think that gets to the you know, seeing each patient as an individual and yet yeah, the idea of depression being this diagnosis in the DSM, this sort of Bible of psychiatry, you know, major depressive disorder, I just don't think that's a an accurate reflection of what depression is. I mean, it's you know, it can be so much more than just those five or six symptoms you need to kind of have like a checklist of. I mean, it doesn't even mention anxiety in that in that sort of definition. I think that's we need to kind of take our idea of depression and really kind of like dig into our own personal experience. Like what is it about that depression that is causing you such pain or such misery? And for me, it would be the sort of the anhedonia, this sort of lack of motivation, this drive that I once had. And then the also the suicide that is, you know, 
has become quite dangerous in the past. So those two elements of my personal experience, how can we best manage them and treat them? And for me, it's psychotherapy and it's um, antidepressants and it's exercise and it's changing the diet and, you know, like you say, social connections, making sure that I'm connected to people. All these things I'm currently failing at and, you know, that's why it's come back. And you let yourself kind of relax or you, you, you get lazy at some point and then, you know, it can come back just like, you know, asthma or, or any other chronic condition. And I think the individual sort of element of it is how we should kind of see depression, that it's not this one size fits all. Not everyone's going to respond to antidepressants. Not everyone's going to enjoy CBT. Some people might just need a membership to do some bouldering or something, spending more time in art museums or like something that's really personal that could ha give someone that feeling of worth. And if it does become, you know, more dangerous and, you know, other treatments aren't working, there are always other avenues to go down. And that's what I tried to kind of, my hope in the book was essentially me searching for things, you know, in case I didn't respond to, to the sort of the routine SSRI or I didn't respond to CBT. And so I found hope in, you know, that there are other things on the horizon, such as psychedelics or, you know, anti-inflammatories or the microbiome or changes in diet or specific types of exercise. And all these together, I think is just, unfortunately, right now we're in a place where we just have to do it by trial and error. Right now I speak from a place of a bit of disappointment that I'm back in the same situation that these old patterns have emerged. But I know that at some point I'll be, you know, more able to think of a brighter future. Well, I hope that you know that this book as well, it really helped me. And, you know, and, and the fact that you've shown up today, given that we've like, because of my, some of my own mental health issues, we've had to reschedule this a million times, you know, and you're, you're turning up. And I think sometimes that's, it is these little things, you know, it's lots of little things. And please don't feel me telling you how to feel is like, if that worked. <laughs> We we wouldn't be here talking today, but like go for it now. Well, please don't feel disappointed that you're that you're experiencing like this. I I I I think that recovery is not linear in any way, and I think sometimes that these things, you know, like you said, I think you nailed it there, where you were like, I relaxed a bit. That sounds in itself depressing. What for the rest of my life, I've got to live like this. But I think when you experience the pain of feeling depression you know as you do eventually it is it's about learning that toolkit isn't it of what you have to do on a daily basis just as you, you know you referenced it there if you had asthma or diabetes you would take a medicine you would you know there are things you would avoid and I think that that we need to think more like that the illnesses that fall under depression can be chronic and yet we attach so much personal shame and moral judgment don't we to it yeah, exactly. And also I'm I'm thirty one. Like I've I'm still figuring it out. I, I can't say that I know everything about, you know, this illness. It's it's been part of my life for a decade, perhaps more. I mean, I go through the sort of family connections and stuff, so you know, it's been there for for much longer than I've been alive. But for me I'm still kind of working things out and I think the book was perhaps that first step. It's a very you know, odd way to, to have that first step to write a, a gigantic book on it but it's a brilliant way i wanted to understand it and you know i was a science writer so i just thought you know i really want to understand this condition and you know 
if I can help other people at the same time, then that's amazing. You have, and you will. And I beseech everyone to go and get a copy of it because it's, you know, it's not an easy read, so to speak, because it's on a tough subject. I think also part of it is is demystifying it. That's part of the problem, isn't it? That we, we see it as this sort of overwhelming thing and you have done such a brilliant job of demystifying it. And, you know, I, I, I really think it's it's a great help and actually more help. More, it was more helpful to me than a self-help book, you know, because it just, it, 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 it brought it all into perspective as well. And actually, you we lack that, don't we, when we're in the, the depths. Yeah, I think for people, for people who maybe you know, thinking of someone else to try and understand where they might be. I mean, a memoir is probably another, you know, good way to think about it, but I wanted to sort of broaden the horizons of my own experience to kind of take in, you know, this rich history that we're still taking sort of elements from and kind of rolling them into our everyday lives. It is part memoir. And it's, it is part, it's yeah, part there is me in there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you, Alex. And I'm so sorry you're experiencing this and I'm sure everyone listening will you know join me in reaching out across the across the across the, the divide, divide <laughs> the in the virtual divide um to give you a big hug and you know and I really appreciate you sharing that as well because you could easily have turned up and gone yeah I'm fine great thanks now let's talk about the book and then you know job done and you haven't you've come and you've in the words of many flimflammy psycho People, you've like you've you've turned up and been honest. I don't know why I just did that accent. Nice. I apologise, but you've it's really helpful and it's going to help a lot of people. So thank you so much, Alex Riley. A cure for darkness: the story of depression and how we treat it is out now. Thank you so much. Before you go, please follow Mad World on your podcast app to make sure you never miss an episode. And if you feel like it, leave us a rating and a review. I love to read what you think about the shows and also see your guest suggestions. Mad World is all about helping our listeners and I love hearing from you. The Telegraph also let me loose in column form. So if you'd like to hear even more from me, head to telegraph.co.uk forward slash madworld and you can get your first 30 days access to the website completely free. If you've been affected by anything we've talked about in our podcast today, the following organisations offer free and confidential support over the phone. The Samaritans can be reached 24 hours a day, seven days a week on 116 123. Or you can contact the mental health charity Mind for advice on a range of mental health issues. Their phone number is 0300 123 That's 0300 123 They're accessible 9am to 5pm, Monday to Friday, excluding bank holidays. There's also Young Minds who provide support if you're a parent or a carer worried about a child's welfare. They're on 0808 802 5544. That's 0808 802 5544. If you prefer tech support, Shout is a 24-7 UK crisis tech service available for times when people feel they need immediate support. By texting Shout to 85258, you will be put in touch with a trained crisis volunteer who will chat to you via text. And importantly, please 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 